What possessed John Glover to leave the comforts of England to sail to the end of the world? The journey was 12,000 miles and treacherous, and it ended in a land that was mostly uncharted and unknown. New Holland, the writer Robert Hughes quipped, was as remote as the moon. Indeed, it was more remote. You could see the moon. You could not see New Holland. Glover was a successful artist in England. He was making a tidy sum from his art sales, as well as earning good money as a drawing master. Although it must have irked him that he was never elected a member of the Royal Academy in England, he was nevertheless a painter who enjoyed both financial and artistic success. He lived in a verdant part of the English Midlands and was surrounded by an interesting circle of writers, poets and artists. He had done his grand tour to Italy and also been awarded a gold medal in the Paris Salon of 1814. What then caused Glover to leave England's calm sunshine to go to the tough and scrubby landscape of the Antipodes? At age 63, and very well off, he was all set up for a peaceful retirement. However, on the 18th of May, 1830, he auctioned his paintings and sold his house. Soon after, Glover, his wife, his eldest son and his servant, Thomas Ely, boarded the ship the Thomas Lorry, bound for Hobart Town, to join three of his sons who had settled there previously. The trip was gruelling. Bad weather kept the ship pitching in the English Straits for a full month. His wife suffered terribly from seasickness, and Glover himself, who was 18 stone, over 6 feet tall and with two club feet, was exhausted by the tropical heat. It was a mark of his discomfort that Glover made hardly any drawings on the voyage over. They arrived in Van Diemen's Land, now Tasmania, in 1831, on Glover's 64th birthday. John Glover's great inspiration was nature. At first, the woodlands and glades of the English countryside, but later, the scrub and plains of the Australian landscape. Whilst many were transported to the other side of the world for insignificant misdemeanours, such as stealing a bolt of cloth or undertaking a petty forgery, other pioneering spirits came seeking new experiences in new lands. John Glover was seeking the new and the exotic, travelling to the bizarre new world of New Holland to behold such wonders as the kangaroo and the platypus. Van Diemen's Land was this new beautiful world and Glover delighted in it. He's one of the first, perhaps the very first, to attempt to create accurate depictions of the Australian landscape. In The River Nile, Van Diemen's Land from Mr Glover's farm, Glover has presented the broad, clear sunlight characteristic of Australia and has rendered the trees in a style that John Olson called spot dottiness, using the ochres, olives and browns appropriate to them. The careful observation of nature was central to John Glover's practice. On a trip to Italy, he stated his aim to make, according to his account, 3,000 sketches. And he was no less prodigious in Australia bringing with him at least 104 sketchbooks. His sketchbooks show carefully observed studies of the local flora and fauna, of eucalypts, she-oaks, tea-trees, kangaroos. His friend Edward Price recounted, His knowledge was almost entirely derived from the study of nature, 
and not from works of art. His numerous sketchbooks are full of Indian ink drawings made at all hours. He'd be in the meadows in the summer morning, and his book was always ready as he went to attend his pupils. And in the winter, when the ground had been covered with snow, he has made studies of cattle in the foldyard. Nothing escaped his observation, and he never lost an opportunity of noting down anything that was worth remembering. This careful observation of nature enabled Glover to depict the Australian landscape with a frankness and accuracy that was seldom seen previously. Yet Glover was nevertheless still bound to ideals of the picturesque conventions that he had spent a lifetime in England perfecting and which represented the dominant aesthetic in landscape painting at the time. This tension between the real and the ideal gives great insight into the mind of the colonial settler. They were between two worlds, at once seeking to recreate an Arcadian Europe, but also confronted with the realities of the Australian bush. Glover's depiction of the local indigenous people, the Palawa, also presents a European overlay over the indigenous reality. Glover was interested in the Palawa. He met with them and sketched them often. His presentation here is a curious mix of influences. In part, the painting is an accurate depiction of local custom. In part, it owes much to ideas of the noble savage. And in part, he has arranged them around his landscape like little shepherds in Arcadia. But for the Palawa, Arcadia it was not. An appalling shadow is cast over the painting when the future of these figures is considered. When Truganini died in 1876, only a few decades after this image was painted, the Palawa were pronounced extinct. <laughs> 